Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and this week Blair and I welcome Chris DeFalco to the show. Chris has spent most of his career within the APM, the Asset Performance Management space. What he has seen is a whole lot of different tools that have been used properly, that have been used improperly, and some that haven't been utilized to their fullest extent. We dive into what is in the reliability toolbox in this episode, and we talk with Chris in a lot of these different areas. It's a really fun conversation. I learned a lot talking to Chris, and I know you will too. Thanks for listening. Here's your episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today we've got Chris DeFalco with us to talk about what is in the reliability toolbox. And as a special treat, Blair has been able to join us for today's episode as well. Um, and so really excited to dive into this topic with Chris and Blair. Uh, but before we get started, why don't you give us a bit of an introduction on yourself, Chris? Oh, sure. Well, Steve and Blair, thanks for inviting me. I'm super, super excited to be a part of this and chat with you guys today. Um, my background is, uh, I guess, extensive. I hate to say how long I've been in this space of APM, reliability, um, but I started back in 1989. Um, my background is uh, mechanical engineering by education, but I began as a practitioner in industry um, both in the nuclear industry and the pharmaceutical industry as a maintenance and reliability engineer. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot about <clears throat> condition-based maintenance. We called it predictive back in the day. And I know we're going to talk about predictive maintenance later in this podcast with uh, reference to machine learning and AI and all that. But it was just basically vibration analysis and thermography and those kinds of things back then. Um, I joined a startup in 1997 called Meridian. You may have heard of them. Um, it's it was a company at the time focused on building tools for reliability engineers like me. So I was one of the first guinea pigs, if you will, reliability engineers that joined the company. Um, and I think I think we thought it was going to be a quick, quick uh, startup. Uh, Twenty years later, <laughs> we we built this you know organization around APM, and uh, it was really cool. I got to do a lot of neat work with customers implementing APM and working with different markets and different industries um, and services. Um, spent half my time in services and then half my time on the product team building out solutions. Um, and so the areas of solutions I really focused on were like asset strategy, asset health, mobile solutions, and analytics. Um, uh, in 2016, uh, we were acquired by GE Digital. Um, and um, I don't know if anybody's been through an integration of a big company taking over a smaller company. Um, that is an interesting time. <laughs> so I went through that interesting time. I did find myself leading the product teams for APM. That included the Heritage Meridian capabilities and also other acquisition acquisitions, notably SmartSignal um, from uh, GE. Uh, and then some of the if you remember the platform, the digital platform, Predix applications, some of the Predix applications kind of fell under my, my reign, I guess, not reign, I shouldn't say that, <laughs> but my, my, my area of responsibility and also had a content strategy for digital twins as part of that as well. So, um, you know, big company wasn't for me. I left GE in 2019 and uh, I joined a startup called Itis Digital, 
And so today I'm the head of product at IDIS Digital. Uh, we're getting back to basics. Um, we have a new APM solution in the market, kind of builds on our collective experiences. I work with uh, a lot of my peers from the Meridium days, and we're just taking our knowledge and we want to serve customers with a uh, yeah, more focused, better solution in APM, I would say. So hope that wasn't too long, but that kind of gives you an idea of, uh, of my background. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. That's fantastic, Chris. And I think uh, as soon as you say Meridian, I think probably 90% of the people in maintenance and reliability would would understand where you've been. So <laughs> yeah, Chris, uh, Chris if, I, if I don't mind jumping in, I could probably just on that intro alone, spend the next hour just <laughs> chatting with you on that as well. Because first of all, my first note here was, wait a minute, there were startups back in the 1990s. I yeah, thought startups sure. was, was, was the thing that just happened now. <laughs> Right. But it was it, it was funny because I watched from the sidelines of Meridium grow up. And I remember because um, I, I believe I can say this, but I watched it from an Emerson perspective of Emerson trying to get in there and some partnerships. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. and, and then GE came in with an investment stake and then Emerson. Right. And it is this this thing. I'm like, what is happening here? Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. It, it was interesting. And then to, to, to see it become. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I tell you, there was there was an ex exit strategy. I think our owner thought he would exit earlier than twenty some years. Yeah. <laughs> in the business, it, but it's, that's, <laughs> it speaks to a uh, you know a, a value added product, right? That was that was yeah. providing value, yeah. bringing revenue in, of course, which was which was fantastic. I, I mean, we were making we were we were we were serving customers and we were making money and we we're having fun. And yeah. so I think, you know, at the time, I think our owner was like, hey, this is good. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> That's right. It turns out this is fun. One more yeah, so we, in the job, right? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I mean, not to get too far down this rabbit hole, but honestly, you know, as I was leading the product for Meridian at the time, I was I was like, okay, who's a competitor and who's who's eventually going to buy us? Buy you know, us is it going to be GE? Is it going to be Emerson? Is it going to be SAP? Yeah. Is it going to be IBM? Um, it could have it been any of those. And that's what made it unique. And then right. what I really liked is, then, you know, becoming part of the, I'll call the mothership and then starting to work under the pre predix umbrella. And you mentioned smart signal. Like I remember smart signal is it was the analytics ahead of its time. It was like, Oh my yeah. God, smart signal. Right. And yeah. all that, all that experience. And I think this fits in well for what we're going to discuss today about the reliability toolbox. You see it from the, the APM side, yeah. the analytics side. So um, I can, I can understand and appreciate, you know, going into a, a larger organization. I've had those struggles in the past, right. We're, <laughs> we're trying to navigate in a, before you can make a lot quicker decisions, which was probably one of the, the agility of a, a meridium sized company, although it did get bigger, right? Yeah. Um, to be yeah, able to make absolutely decisions, pivot and then get into a bigger ship. It's some, it, it obviously can pivot, but this takes a little bit, a little bit longer, right? But your breadth of experience is, is fantastic. And I can only imagine what you guys are building now with that level of experience along with your peers, right? When you're combining what you've learned over those 20 years, it's gonna be fantastic. Right, right. we're having fun again. It's good. <laughs> That's all you can ask for in a job, right? Just have a little bit of fun. And if you can make money doing it, that's great. But that's even better. Right on. <laughs> um, yeah. So APM, Asset Performance Management, um, that's a set of tools that a reliability engineer would use. Now, one of the big tools that are co that, that's coming in through industry, and uh, I don't think coming in is the right word anymore. It, it's here. It's being used. Is, is the AI and the machine learning and but it's nothing that's actually really new it's just we started calling it ai and ml um what are your thoughts being that you've you've come from kind of the world that 
almost started that at where we are today. Yeah, yeah. You 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 characterize APM as a set of tools, and it is. But you know, I I like to think of APM as a as a process, like a work process. You know, and it's really focused on, you know, determining what assets matter. Like, what's your risk of failure, and then <clears throat> defining the tactics and analytics, or what tools you're going to apply to the assets that matter, and then monitor that over time and then act on emerging threats of failure and avoid those unplanned events. And then in that, there's a collection of tools, right? Um, and the tools, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, getting back to the reliability toolbox and what's in the toolbox, um, you know, it's really evolved over my career. Um, you know, I remember in the 90s as a reliability engineer, you know, working at the plant, working with the maintenance and PM crews, <clears throat> you know, we... We had a very basic CMMS, which we did not utilize very well. Um, we had um, some new emerging technologies of analytics, like you know, one-off vibration analysis and lubricant analysis and thermography. Uh, we had some methods we applied, like root cause. Um, we were just getting into doing RCM studies and FMEA, and you know, all of that's still valid. Right. All of that's still in the box, you know, to apply, um, you know, and then as things evolve, you know, I guess CMMS turned to EAM, um, you know, it's like formerly known as CMMS. Now you have an EAM, which is supposed to be broader and better for you. And you could argue that um, when I went to Meridium, we had this reliability analytics tool and it was a statistical tool. And. I'll be honest with you and I'll confess now, like I had never used Weibull or growth analysis or anything like that. I had to learn it, you know, as a, as the, uh, one of the first reliability engineers at, uh, at Meridium and, uh, like how, how's this work, you know, like how, how do you know, so I did some study on that and then, you know, building out RAM modeling tools. I mean, all of that is, you know, still in the toolbox and, and still available. But I think in the 2000s, that's when we really got into like integrated data and taking, you know, taking the data that you have um, and being able to, to compute on it with analytics. And then it seemed like, and I don't know what, what you guys think, but it seemed like there was this groundswell of we're going to just throw analytics at everything and it's going to solve all our problems. So I, I don't know what you're your experience has been, but, you know, kind of living through it, I, you know, I, I, I kind of thought, well, these analytics are really cool, you know, and I'm kind of a lifelong learner. So I want to take advantage of that, but like these other things are still valid. Right. Um, so I don't, I, what, what are your guys, what do you guys think? Yeah. Like, I, I think when you mentioned the process, that's, that's perfect. Cause it's the analytics you you need it's a it's a stepped approach you want to go from the least complicated solution and work your way up far too often we we just jump into what is the fanciest thing right now let's dive into that instead of thinking hey is a simple threshold actually going to be the thing that solves our problem and uh, you know i think what we found in, in my organization is that thresholds are actually getting us most of the way at where we're at within our reliability space. Like, I, there's going to be a point where that gets exhausted, and then you move on to more advanced ones. And you know, we have some spaces where we're moving into the more more advanced analytics. But it's 
you know, each problem, you need to look look at it critically and define those steps and, and think about where you actually need to to develop that solution. And it goes back to the FMEA. Like, what is your failure mode? How are you trying to control it? And you need to think about how the piece of equipment works before you try and build analytics around it. Right, right. I, I totally agree with that. Like, you know, understand the equipment, how it can fail. Like, what equipment matters? You know, which failures matter? And then that should really drive your rigor around avoiding those failures, for sure. And, and just a, a comment on that, and I agree, Steve, is, you know, what, what I found in being in the AI space was just that, like what, um, you know, call it threshold rules or, or you know, simple analytics that hasn't, you know, we, we've used them on you know, principal component analysis, things like that, that were more common uh, before the influx of, of true machine learning and AI. But but even just creating, you know, quote unquote, threshold rules is is you could put it in a class of AI. It's it's artificial intelligence, right? And, and that's why people get away with saying, hey, this is new AI powered X. And, and technically in the broad spec, it is, right? But it might not be using machine learning or deep learning or things like that. Is once, and I agree, is once you start applying that threshold logic with some context, so you start to you know, apply operating context or what I would call conditional alarming. So it's not always set at that same threshold, but it's based on during startup, this is my threshold, during shutdown, this is my threshold during summer, this is my threat, you know, those type of context to it, then those values of threshold alarms become more valuable. And then, then you can start, you know, once you've conquered those, as you said, you will, as you said, exhaust it. And that's where, you know, machine learning and AI, in my opinion, and I think you might agree with this, Chris, is you don't, don't throw a Ferrari to get groceries, right? Like solve that for more complex problems. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. anyone that's listening, if you're driving a Ferrari to get groceries, good for you. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, that's awesome. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still taking my minivan, but uh, exactly right. Is look at the problem, look at the failure mode, and then logically start to apply technology I, at the easiest form to solve that problem. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Like, you know, we're talking about this toolbox analogy. Like if I just need to tighten a screw, I'm going to use a screwdriver. Right. Right. But if I'm, if I'm rebuilding my deck, I'm going to use a bunch of tools, you know, and power tools. And, you know, if I could afford a robot to do it for me, I would do it. I would, I would probably, you know, invest in that and have that happen. Um, but uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and I like what you said, Blair, about artificial intelligence. I think a lot of people think that AI is, hey, this advanced deep learning or, you know, some type of machine cognizant, uh, you know, models that are like really, really advanced. But like, if you look at the basic definition of artificial intelligence, and I think you'll agree, agree Blair, it's like, well, it's, it's being able to sense data and have some reason or logic applied to it and act upon it. I think the real difference in, you know, if you really want to be sure about it, it's got to be adaptive. Like it's got to kind of, learn over time or be adaptable over time that you, you were mentioning the conditional uh, conditional thresholds, you know, That's to right. be able to, um, you know, feed that back and kind of learn from history, you know, over time. Right. And, exactly. Yeah. And I think one of the, the biggest challenges in, I'll call it manufacturing, but that's a, a wide spectrum is dealing with variability. Right. Mm, and it, we've absolutely. always tried, we've always tried to work variability out of our systems, out of our processes where, 
you can do that to a point, but there's always going to be variability in raw materials and, and everything, right? And and that's where, and if you everyone thinks they worked with it, like MPC controllers or expert systems back in the automation days, you know, and they've been around for a long time before my right. career even started, is why did those fail? And they had all the potential is they didn't deal with variability. If right. some, the feedstock changed or whatever, then the whole logic would change. And I think that's where we're starting to see more advanced AI and ML come in is dealing with that variability where the thresholds would just be out of whack because of any change in that supply chain. Totally agree. Totally agree. There is so much, I mean, in industrial uh, applications, there's so much variability, right? And the operating context is so keen. And so let's like, my, my approach has always been like, technology is great. I'm, I'm a technologist, my whole career, you know, basically mm-hmm. I've worked in technology and solutions, but you can't, um, you can't ignore the subject matter expert that you have at the sites. You know, the, the people that work with the machines, uh, the people that operate the machines, um, uh, even in, in the folks that design and upgrade those machines. You know, I, I learned early on in my career that I wouldn't be a good reliability engineer if I didn't really appreciate and value the maintenance mechanics I worked with and the operators I worked with. And I think I really believe that's still true today. And then the beauty of technology is when you combine the technology to lever that expertise, right. And, and bring that to bear, I think. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it's, uh, yeah, I totally agree. Cause it's, you know, you were talked about earlier about going back to basics and, you know, in my mind, going back to basics, a lot of it is just going to the shop floor and asking the technicians what's wrong and how to solve it. And it might lead you down the path of putting in some sort of um, analytics to control your failure mode or maybe a, a redesign or something else. But like that's the first step whenever you're solving a problem is is ask the people involved and get their thoughts because... 90% of the time they already know how to solve it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And then your job is just enabling that solution. Right. And that's how, I, at least that's how I found a lot of early success in my career you know, doing that. Cause you're helping them. I keep telling everybody reliability engineering is easy. <laughs> everybody <laughs> else does the work for you. They have all your answers. You just need to ask. That's right. <laughs> yep. Yes. That's right. Absolutely. Like I didn't learn all this stuff, you know, like I came out of college and I got an engineering degree. First thing I had to do is just earn trust, right. <laughs> with the people I work with, you know, and they say, Hey, this kid got an engineering degree. He knows, he thinks he knows all this, all this stuff. And I just went in really humble. And, you know, I, that was one of the secrets of my success was to, to work with people, earn their trust and help them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, most maintenance or reliability engineers come from mechanical engineering, which, you know, the school I went to, they didn't have a specific course that said, this is maintenance engineering 101. Like, right. that's not, no. that's not there. It, <laughs> you get the job and you learn, learn about maintenance when you get there. And, and, uh, you know, talk to throughout the people I've talked to on this show, it's very clear that you just kind of end up in the, in the maintenance reliability space and you, you take it from there. So right. it's, uh, but you, um, met, you mentioned university. Do you remember your vibration courses and, you know, in, in college engineering courses? And it was all math. And, you know, then I, I, got, I got into like one of the first really cool things I did as a young engineer was working with vibration tools, like, you know, uh, taking monitoring and, you know, reviewing FFT analyses. I'm like, oh, I didn't learn any of that in college, but it's <laughs> super cool. 
<laughs> you know. But you uh, did do FEAs by hand, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's useful. Uh, yep. Oh, um, I'm getting so like PTSD here now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's fast forward to the future. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, so thinking about the that reliability toolkit, like. Uh, you know, outside, uh, what do you think is kind of the? There's obviously not one silver bullet that solves it, solves your all your issues, and everything that you're doing is is designed to help. You're either trying to control a failure mode or resolve a failure mode. At the end of the day, um, like we, when we're trying to control, that's more in that asset health space. Like, is there any other like toolkit items in that toolkit that you think is you know, maybe something that's underappreciated or underutilized? Well, I'd say, and we always talk about maintenance strategies and tactics and, and uh, maintenance tactics and the maintenance plan. And there's a lot of work that's done on that. And I wouldn't say underutilized, but maybe not focused right. Um, and I'm guilty of this too. Like when I learned RCM techniques Back in the day, I thought, oh, this is super cool. You know, like we're going to do function, you know, we're going to define the functions and function failure modes and come up with the optimum plan, the best, perfect, most perfect plan. And I mean, the overall approach and method of getting to that answer is good, but I think we, we waterfall it too much, honestly, you know, and we, we try to like, I got to have the perfect plan. If we're going to do a maintenance strategy, it's got to be the perfect strategy. And then I need to implement that whole strategy all at once. Right. And I think, um, I think you should, I think it's maybe not a matter of underutilizing the tool. Maybe those tools have been a little overutilized, but only on the development side and less on the implementation side. Right. So I'd say, you know, let's get back to basics again and, and, you know, determine like, Yes, it's very important that everything you do and all the investment you make in tactics, maintenance tactics, are related to failure modes and that the avoiding of failure modes. But your plan's not perfect today, and it won't necessarily be perfect tomorrow. But you can improve it, and I think it's an iterative cycle of improvement. And you know, I guess um, I forget exactly what you asked, Steve. Honestly, but I, you know what. So it hit my mind was like, I think we, a lot of times we get into these programs where like, we gotta, you know, we gotta do asset strategies and we gotta make them perfect. And I, I don't think that's the case. I think you put effort into, you know, the assets that matter, enhance the plan and optimize it over time and don't feel like you have to be perfect, right? You just solve the problems that need to be solved and improve the plans that need to be improved um, over time. And then, the other thing I'd say is, you know, it doesn't all have to be predictive maintenance, right? Like there are time-based activities that are still um, valid. Like if it's not practical to do the predictive maintenance, if it's not practical to do condition maintenance, then a time-based inspection is, 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 is not a bad thing to do. There's a, like the most practical plan is still a mix of some time-based activities and some condition-based activities. And if, you know, and if, if, if you need it, and if it's important, some predictive analytic capabilities on top of that. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think, you know, that review of those strategies and those plans that we put in place, like, 
you do the RCM study, like you said, and it, it's great. You define it all, you put it into place, and then they're not revisited at a proper mm. frequency. And it's just put in there and said, okay, this is our strategy. This is how we maintain something. And most, a lot of times, um, they're put into place before an a, a facilities commissioned or an assets commissioned, and and it doesn't get revisited until we start seeing that asset fail. Um, and it's usually not until it's become a bad actor that it's starts being revisited. When I think about the strategy and I think about, we put in all this work, you develop your PM, you develop your inspections, and you go through that effort to define your failure modes, uh, how to control them. And then I don't think we go back often enough to look at that strategy and say, okay, you know what, we said we're gonna control this failure mode, yet, we're still seeing it. Why are we still seeing it? And, you know, it goes back to that root cause analysis bit too of those of those more chronic issues in like th- taking all those reliability initiatives and tools and remembering that they're iterative. I think is is something that's missing that we do. We're we're very project focused and not totally agree. Not totally agree. Process focused. Like, yeah, I totally agree. Like what Blair mentioned, the variability, right? Like you are doing an RCM study or FMEA study, or if you're in the integrity space, you're, maybe you're doing a risk-based inspection or RBI study, that's a moment in time. You're going to take the data you have at that time and make the best decision that you can. But in another year, two years, three years, four years, five years, things change. And, you know, the plan is, is essentially static and it, it shouldn't be, right? It should be reevaluated and you know, kind of live with your operations um, as you go, right? So that whole idea of, you know, quote unquote, living RCM or um, RCM is a totally overused term, <laughs> but as well, um, but kind of having uh, living strategies for your, for, for your assets. And, and, you know, that might sound like, oh, I got to review all my, my plans, you know, you can do it in a, in a practical way, right? And, you know, create your own practical kind of feedback mechanisms to identify, be more proactive about those kinds of reviews. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, when it's funny, cause we, we built a strategy probably five years ago for one of our critical assets, which really in the grand scheme of things, isn't that long. Mm-hmm. And, and I was looking at it the other day and I'm like, well, since then, in those five years, we've put it. We've got a sensor here that we're monitoring and getting real-time data for this, and it's still a still a PM inspection. Like, do we really need that? And right. like, what are looking at those tasks that you've defined, and um, and taking it and adjusting your plans as new information comes in? Like, I, I've seen it way too often where we get that new sensor, and then it's you still keep the other checks, but you also have yep. a sensor monitoring the same thing. It's like, <clears throat> what's the point of this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had a, I had a really, uh, I had a colleague I used to work with at Meridium. Um, and, uh, he was great. And he used to call that fear-based maintenance, <laughs> <laughs> which meant, you know, there's a lot of things that go into fear-based maintenance, but there's this fear that we're doing something and we haven't had this failure mode occur. So let's just keep doing it because, um, you know, we can't get rid of it, <laughs> you know, even if there's a better way or, 
you have this failure mode and you like throw so much maintenance and inspection on it that you've just created kind of a regime based on fear, like something bad happened. And instead of really attacking the root cause, you just put all these layers of checks and inspections or, you know, restoration tasks in place. It's very expensive, but you're not going to have that failure mode again. And nobody wants to change it. Right. I don't know if you have experienced that Steve as well. Yeah. I, every day, like (laughs) uh, I think every maintenance or reliability engineer everywhere in the world, unless you're in like nuclear or the highly regulated industries experience that every day. Um, and you know, and it goes back to, I think in, in going back to the toolbox analogy is that RCA tool that I think is a very underutilized, uh, system or process like we talk about it a lot on the show and like we've we've chatted with tons of different experts on on rca and the common theme is we're not doing it enough like you spend so much money fixing all the equipment you spend so much money uh on the downtime why aren't you actually figuring out what caused your failure or or you do it superficially right and you don't go deep enough right? To really understand the real causes. Maybe you just focus on, uh, you know, a, a mechanical cause, right? Or yeah. electrical cause, but you're not looking at human causes or latent causes that you also need to address, right? In that, in that process, right? So I, I, I agree with you. I think RCA is an underutilized capability. And I think there's a danger and you don't go deep enough to really identify what you need to resolve. And to your point, you spent all this effort fixing the failure, like everybody's tired, let's move on. And maybe if you're in a reactive state, you gotta move on to the next problem, right? And you don't spend enough time doing your your uh, post-mortem, if you will, uh, root cause on, you know, what do we really need to do to be more proactive in the future? Yeah, exactly. Cause I think, you know, we, we look at, we always look at controlling the failure modes, but at the end, you need to control what the root, the root cause, or at least break that causal tree, yeah. so that that failure mode can't can't show up again. And, and whether it's systemic or latent um, or human, or it, it's very rarely a manufacturing defect is the root cause of something. You know, even if you you see that there was a manufacturing defect, usually it takes some sort of improper operation or some other system to actually make that defect have the stress levels or whatever um, to to cause your your critical failure um, yeah sure yeah I mean you know um, I think as you said like every reliability maintenance engineer they have like a, a history of case studies you know to that point, right? That, you know, well, it wasn't really the problem with the machine. We operated it in a way to go faster. A lot of times in my experience, it was like, we had to go faster. So they would do things like our operators sometimes would do things that weren't natural, <laughs> you know, with the equipment. And uh, it, it, it could cause a, pro- if it didn't, you know, a lot of times I got away with it, but every once in a while they didn't. 
and yeah and you know it caused big problems you know and and uh yeah you know, i think i think we all have those uh war stories <laughs> i'm in the mobile equipment world and everything the first thing is it's the operator drove it wrong <laughs> <laughs> It's the easiest answer to everything. Um. Yeah, right on. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it just, that goes back to the whole, you know, pointing of fingers when there's a problem, right? And, you know, coming back to trust, you know, as a reliability engineer, it's like really understanding and getting to the root. You know, if those folks in the field trust you, they'll say, hey, this is what happened, <laughs> you know, and, and then like, how can we fix this, right? And make it better, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Now, from what you've what you've seen throughout your career is there something um is there anything that you know you, you see maintenance or reliability engineers using maybe using it improperly or something that is not um as effective as it could be mm, yeah i i think i just go back to you know fmea rcm studies i, I think that would be the, the i would i I, I, I go back to that same example, right? Like I, yeah. I think we spend way too much time on strategy development and trying to polish the strategy. And, you know, if we just take part of it, you know, and get it better, you know, and, and, and move it forward, like in part, I think you're doing good and it doesn't have to be perfect. Right. I, and I, I've seen a lot of investment, kind of go into an RCM study and or FMEA study and it just sits, you know, on either a physical shelf or a virtual shelf and it's not implemented. It's never used. And there's no value in that. I mean, maybe there's some incremental learning from the team that put it together that helped them be a better maintenance technician or operator or engineer, but the value is the strategy, right? And implementing the strategy and making it real. And I think there's still problems with that, you know, in an in industry that we, we get, you know, we spend so much time developing that and uh, we spend little, you know, not enough time implementing it. And then to your point, reviewing it over time, like after you spend all that time building the perfect strategy, nobody wants to say, Hey, it was maybe, maybe it wasn't right. You know, but to your point, like things change, you know, we've got sensors now we can move to predictive maintenance where we were doing time-based activities. And you, I think you have to go into that, that with that thought process. Like it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be better. And then we're going to review it later and we're going to make it better. And it's going to be incremental over time. And I think that's the approach that you need to take. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think there's a desire to start from scratch at a lot of these places too. Like, you know, whether you're trying to move from the reactive space to um, to the non-reactive space or just trying to get better in general, there's a desire and everybody feels that their equipment is so unique that they need to start the RCM or FMEA right from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, Go ahead. I, 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 I totally agree with you. Like, and, and honestly, I can think back to my original training in RCM and that's what you're taught to do, right? You are taught to completely break out of a paradigm of your history. Don't leverage your history at all and just ap approach it purely. And that, you know, I think in the early RCM2, like I, I got trained on the RCM2 methodology, um, at least at the time, that was the, that was the approach. And that's what, you know, I was trained on. 
And so I think inherently there's some of that that comes with the methodology, <laughs> but I agree with you. Like I got into it and I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, these machines are very similar. Why can't I just template this? Right. And, you know, some of the, you know, the, the consequences vary, you know, so we had, we actually had different consequences in pharmaceutical versus like mm -hmm. nuclear. And so we had to make adjustments to that. And I mean, now there's content available that you can leverage, like the content's not going to be exactly what your operating context is, but I mean, the failure modes are listed and then it's at least a starting point. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. So, um, I guess I'm just, just completely agreeing with you, <laughs> like, you know, leverage what you have, leverage your data, leverage your experience, um, and leverage content that's available that you could use and, and make your own. Right. I mean, it's really important. I don't think any content's going to come in and just solve your problems. I think content gives you a starting point for you to create like a derivative of that for your operating context. And even that's variable, you know, plant to plant. I think based on, you know, even location, right. You know, a plant in a warm environment versus a plant in a cold environment. That's a pretty simple example, but there's lots of other ones. Yeah, exactly. And, and I had, um, Tacoma Zach on the show and he talked about an assets, just a collection of failure modes. And, um, you know, I think when we, when we think about it and we think about the base, like if you have a pump, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, that pump can only fail in certain number of ways. Certainly the mm -hmm. consequences can be different. Like if you're pumping some radioactive slurry or something like that, obviously there's some pretty major consequences that you need to control for maybe a little more than just pumping like sand and water. But sure. if, you're, if you're, the failure modes are still the same on that pump. And depending on what you're doing will make one failure mode show up more frequently than another but the controls and and all those pieces that go in place it's it's often the same it's often the same and really like how much redundancy you're going to have with layers of protection based on a consequence i mean that's that's those are the kinds of decisions you you need to make like do i need a time-based activity and a monitoring activity because the consequence is so great if we have the seal failure that we're going to have a fire or we're going to have some, uh, you know, safety event or something like that. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Or if it's not a great consequence, just go with the monitoring, right. And, and eliminate the time-based activity. So that I think that's where the decision and, you know, most of your brain power should be, be focused on. Um, you know, the failure modes are largely the same. Um, the, the mitigation strategies are largely the same. It's just a matter of, you know, what rigor do you need to go to to mitigate the risk of that failure? And that's where the operating context comes into play, you know, that risk of failure, right? Like you yeah. said, you know, if you're, um, you know, if it's a water pump, there's risk associated with that. Um, if it's pumping some hydrocarbon, you know, moving hydrocarbon, you know, there's increased risk, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think for uh, my last question, I, I kind of, you kind of mentioned it there in the way you're saying, but when we're thinking about um, monitoring and, and controlling, I, I think we go into a space that we overvalue monitoring. So, you know, when we think about um, 
like, okay, we've got a failure mode that we keep seeing. Maybe it's unexpected. Maybe it's showing up on a PM, whatever it is. It's happening unexpectedly, and we need to come up with a way to control it. I think there might be a bit of a miss um, where our mindsets go when we try and control them. That, hey, you know what? All of a sudden, we can, can detect this failure now. And we've saved a bunch of money. But in reality, detecting a failure isn't necessarily going to solve solve the problem. So how do you, and, and this is obviously a pretty broad question, but how do you start to overcome that? And now that you've detected something new, how do you derive value from it? Gotcha. So are you saying, just unpacking your question a little bit. Yeah. So you're saying... Um, overvaluing monitoring, meaning that you've got a lot of data, you're monitoring things, you're detecting things, and we're, we're promoting that capability that we can monitor and detect things, but we're really not taking action on it. I mean, that's, that's, is that part of the question? Well, to, to kind of put it, give an example to it. So like you're running an engine and you keep having, uh, um, I don't know, um, some sort of, you, you keep failing the main, main and rod bearings or you keep failing bearings on the engine. And that takes out your engine, it's a complete failure. But you've come up with a great new model and now you can detect that bearing and main and rod bearing failure. But the problem is when you and maybe this wasn't a good question now that I'm asking it this way. Uh, and we can cut it from the whole show. <laughs> um, but n now that you've detected, now you can detect it maybe a week or two weeks in advance, but you've still failed the engine. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. Wh where's gotcha. the value? Like what you've detected uh, is still that failure. Yeah. Um, but it's still going to take you down. It's still going to create all the consequences are still there. You just, you yeah. just know it's coming. Right. Yeah. So I, I think I get your question now, Steve. You need to detect it with enough time to mitigate the consequences of the failure, right? Like, so if the consequences are, you know, let's just talk about operational consequences. We're going to go down. We're going to lose production. We're going to have to expedite, uh, you know, a part, you know, or parts to fix this thing. You know, we got to have a crew working overtime for a shift. I mean, if all you're doing is doing a better planning of all those additional costs, then then it's not that much help. It's not really that helpful. It just maybe helps your efficiency a little bit, but you really need to know in advance and give yourself enough time so that you don't have to expedite the parts, right? So detectability is one thing, but having detectability for action, that's where I was kind of going with my follow-up question is like, if I can detect it, not two weeks, but two months, and I know in two months it's going to be a problem, but right now it's fine. We're going to make production for the next, you know, several weeks, but we're going to plan that outage in two months. And then I can plan some other things around that outage. And then I don't have to, you know, we're planning for it. We're, you know, we're not paying for overtime. We're not paying expedited parts and we don't have a consequence of, of downtime, it's planned downtime, right? Um, and it doesn't impact my availability, my mechanical availability. That's a valuable detection. You know, if it's just 
going to tell me, yeah, you're going to fail next week. Good luck. Then that's not valuable. I, I don't know if that answers your question or not, Steve. Um, but that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a good answer. And, and, and the reason I asked that is because I think there's this focus and of just in time maintenance, um, to try and get your maximum life out of something. But I think we're letting things go too far with just in time mm-hmm. maintenance and, yeah. and they're, we're focused on finding that failure so close to the point of failure where it just kind of brings you into a reactive state. Yeah. 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 And, and I think we need to have that thought process, like you said, of what is the realistic timeline where we can actually make a difference to address that failure? Is it two months for us to get the parts and everything needed? And like, I don't, necessarily like to think about the remaining useful life models but that that's really kind of what we're looking at is what is that time frame that we have to failure and how do we how do we it's going to fail anyways like yeah by the t- point you've detected it doesn't matter what technology you've detected it with it's failing it's just a matter now of when is it at a point that it's considered a critical failure for your operating context and need right. to change it right and and so, yeah, I, I think you you answered it perfectly there, and 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 we need to understand where our what our mitigation strategy is, and having those things in place. And if it's something that's going to shut down your plant, making sure you've got those spares and everything ready to go, and the crew's ready. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like just reacting to detection, you have to put it in the context of the risk of the asset or the risk of that failure to the operation, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, that's why, you know. I think of APM as a process and the first step in the process is to know your assets you know, which assets matter and which failures matter. And that should really drive a lot of your decision-making because the tools are there to help you make better decisions and manage things better, but you need to know what matters. And then that's where you put your rigor. That's where you put, you know, your priorities on the things that matter. Yeah, and I think that's probably the one we didn't talk about. And I haven't talked about it maybe enough on the show is that, uh is the criticality analysis and understanding mm-hmm. what it what assets are actually your critical assets and the ones you need to spend time on. Like I work for a mining fleet. We've got 100 and some odd trucks like and you know, we spend most of our time working on the trucks and when you look at a criticality analysis it's okay, if one truck goes down that's not really a big issue, but you know, if you lose one of the other production machines, a shovel or something, well, that all of a sudden takes down your whole operation because sure. one shovel is feeding 20 or 30 trucks or whatever it might be, right? So th- that's a very easy case of criticality, but they're a lot more nuanced than that. And I think, um, you know, you talk about going back to basics and you need to define what you have and what's important um, as part of that and then focus your attention there. Absolutely. And if you're operating, it's really easy because you just look at where you're spending money or experiencing downtime and (laughs) your criticality analysis has done itself for you a little bit. Uh, You know what matters when it's, you know, affecting your bottom line, you know, that matters for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And I think when I, I first talked to you probably, this might be a year and a half, two years ago now. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly what you said to me is like, don't focus on like, don't, you know, you you've got these assets and these units and and everything running. You don't need to focus on 
um, what's coming down because you're experiencing all those failure modes. You're experiencing the failures. So if you just take it and build strategies based off what you're already seeing, that's going to get you the, the majority yeah. of your value. Yeah. I mean, you know those things are happening. Avoid those things that matter. <laughs> it sounds so simple, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It's not that simple. <laughs> that's why That's why they need folks like us. You know, like and our listeners and everybody out there, you know, that's why that's why you're needed to, you know, apply the tools well and to help the operation, help help others and help your company succeed. Absolutely. Well, with that, I think we are about out of time. So I really appreciate you coming on the show, Chris. Um, Blair did have to drop off. Um, so that's why you didn't hear him too much in the latter half. It's crazy that we have real lives outside of the, yep. the <laughs> recording times. Um, but before we drop off, is there any, like, obviously itis digital is, is new there. You guys have a lot of great stuff coming out and, um, but is there any, anything specific you want to give a shout out to or, or any upcoming conferences or anything that you oh, want sure. to highlight? Well, first of all, Steve, it's been my pleasure to join you on this uh, podcast and be happy to do it again sometime. Um, so thank you for the opportunity um, to, to talk with you. It's been really fun. Um, on ITIS, yeah, we are really innovating on the APM solution. Um, we, the process that I described is what we're enabling with the solution and we're doing it in some really cool ways. Um, as far as conferences coming up, how you know this fall, um, where uh, we intend to be at the SMRP. Actually, I have a presentation at the SMRP conference um, in St. Louis, uh, Missouri um, in October. And we expect to be at the IMC conference as well uh, down in Florida later this year. And um, we're evaluating some other opportunities too with some of our partners, uh, specifically in the mining space. Um, I think there's a conference coming up in either um, Somewhere out west, out your way, Steve. I think somewhere. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, yeah, just if there's any if if anybody has interest in what we're doing, um, you know they 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 know Meridium or you know like like that Meridium stuff and would like to uh, talk to us, talk to me. I mean, just reach out. Um, uh, you know, look at Idis Digital uh, website or Cedafalco at idisdigital.com. I'm happy to talk to anybody about what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll po post those, those links in the podcast comments. And uh, again, it, it'll all come out too with our, our social media posts throughout the week. Um, so yeah, really appreciate you, you coming on the show. I'm really excited to see. I've kind of, I started talking to you guys before you actually launched ITIS there. And it's been, yep. it's been uh, awesome to watch what you guys have come out with and, I've been really impressed with the speed that you guys are coming out with more and more solutions. So I think it really highlights the uh, experience yeah. that you have yeah. and the capacity that the team yeah. has there. So wait, I think uh, back to what Blair was talking about being agile um, <laughs> and smaller and know what you're doing. <laughs> you know, like we, we have a lot of lessons learned over the past 20 years. So um, we're bringing that to bear on our product. So yeah. And I, like I said, it's fun. We, we love what we do. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks, Chris, and we'll we'll chat soon. All right. Thanks, Steve.